Hi everyone, I'm Cheryl Rose, and this is Maybe, a podcast about the messy reality of working for social innovation. Stories about uncertainty and risk, about holding big questions, not always having the answers, having honest conversations, and trying to act in very new ways. My own work has been all about supporting people who engage with that kind of complexity, people with a passion for big change. And big ideas for big change, they lend themselves to metaphors. It's really interesting to consider the forces of change in nature, forces like fire and water. Picture a forest glen engulfed in flames. The fire blazes through the underbrush, climbing steadily up into the treetops. The heat is intense. The sound is overwhelming. Fire is loud, exploding the trunks of mighty trees, roaring as the wind gives it even more energy. It's a force of destruction, leaving scorched earth and charred remains. But it's also leaving behind brand new open spaces. Now picture its counterpart, flowing water, a natural force with a totally different kind of energy. Imagine a river, the water streaming over the land, steady year after year. Eventually, it carves out the earth, leaving a canyon in what had seemed to be rock-solid ground. Water is relentless. Its pressure builds to make permanent change, transforming the landscape it travels through. I've been talking to people a lot lately about these different ways of achieving change. Social activism, it appears more fiery, intent on challenging and swiftly destabilizing the powers that be. While social innovation processes are slower and they flow deliberately within these systems of power, pressuring them to shift, trying to help them become something new. Yeah, I love the analogy of fire and water and I think it's like yin and yang. It, both things are, are necessary. The two things just play off each other if they're allowed to. That's Marenike Olau-Sebikan, who works in all kinds of ways for health equity for Alberta's Black communities. I talked with her recently, and you'll hear more from her in just a bit. I also heard something from my colleague Julian. He shared that a Taoist teacher of his once said to him, fire doesn't change landscapes water does. If we think about that in terms of social innovation, is that always true? I don't really know for sure. But I wanted to dig into it a bit more deeply by talking with people who might have some ideas. I began by connecting with Francis Wesley, a global thought leader in social innovation. Here's part of my conversation with Francis. Hi, Francis. Thanks so much for being here with me. Hi, Cheryl. It's a pleasure to be here. So we're clearly seeing a rise in social activism in Canada, the U.S., and globally, perhaps more than at any other time since the 60s. I could list off a whole series of movements. And so given that, if you could give one piece of advice to these passionate, energized activists, what might you say to them to help them achieve the changes that they want to see in the world? Activism certainly has its place in creating change, but I do think that there's been many activist movements in recent years, I'd say in the last 15 years, that um, haven't gone much of anywhere. For example, Arab Spring. And the problem is that while that energy is enormous and actually brings issues to light, which everyone feels are important, 
um, it's not clear to me yet that that creates sustainable and long-term change. I do think that there, there are two different dynamics. Uh, one is a dynamic of protest, and one is a dynamic of transformation. And we need to remember that protest can be a very important aspect of transformation. You might even say it's a necessary aspect of transformation, but it isn't sufficient. We need a whole other set of mechanisms to be in place. So let's talk a little bit more about that then, because as you say, there, there are different kinds of approaches. And to what extent do you think that these might be able to work together to make change? How do you see, or do you see that there might be some complementary or connected effort? I think it could be enormously effective. And I think we have seen um, in the history of real social transformation that these two often do work side by side. I mean, we've seen this in the environmental movement. So back, you know, in the 80s and 90s, environmental groups were, were divided against each other. And you had the real activist groups, such as Greenpeace on the one hand, and you had groups like Pollution Probe who were really interested in gathering scientific data and then going into boardrooms and working with corporations to try to get them to change. It was like oil and water because as far as Greenpeace was concerned, these people were selling out to the evil empire that they would work with them as opposed to, you know, holding them up to, to global ridicule or to global condemnation. However, over the years, um, there's been enough commitment in the environmental movement so that that ground has shifted. And you do now find uh, organizations like Greenpeace aware that on the one hand, they need to keep the pressure up because pressure is necessary and anger is necessary. And on the other hand, they need to be prepared to walk into the boardroom and sit down and have a conversation with organizations about you know, how this change could be perceived, a, a conversation that isn't an angry one. So it's quite possible for these movements to work together. Yeah. And, you know, as you're talking, and of course I can see there's different kinds of activism and different kinds of leadership emerging in those activist movements and some are talking about life or death realities they've they've lost loved ones they fear for their own lives etc and their activism comes from a place that is so full of of a live emotion and so i wonder if it's almost too much to ask people like that and communities like that to be able to trust working with power to to be patient with the time that it takes for systems to change I wonder what your thoughts are about those kinds of circumstances. Well, I think it might well be too much to expect, but I think that's where we come into the role for what you know we've always talked about as system entrepreneurs. And I know that you've done a, a lot of thinking, writing, and teaching about this kind of change agent that you call a system entrepreneur and how they, you know, the big difference between that kind of entrepreneurship and others is that they're not thinking so much about the effects of these big problems, but they're really interested in what's causing the problem. So can you say a little bit more about that? Um, they're people who can work with those in power, but they're also capable of working and understanding and resonating with uh, the people who feel that, you know, um, they've been the object of some grave injustice and, and are feeling very angry about it. You know, they're able to bridge those two worlds uh, effectively. And um, 
and I do think at times, you know, we have failed um, what I think of as an activist movement because those people have not been there. And if you actually have system entrepreneurs working, um, they can use that energy to make progress, to make new allies, to win concessions. So, uh, you know, it, it's, it's having the right people and the right players to make that connection. So, I mean, going back to your original question, what would I say to the activists? I would say, well, when you're in the business of kicking open the door, make sure that you have <laughs> connections in the house and you have people in your group who can walk through that door before it's slammed shut or barricaded, you know, because they, they have access. Francis helped me to think much more clearly about the relationship between these two different approaches to change. I decided to also grab a chance to talk with Marilyn Struthers, and Marilyn has published a paper in the online journal The Philanthropist entitled At Odds or an Opportunity, Exploring the Tension Between the Social Justice and Social Innovation Narratives. During our long, interesting chat, Marilyn used the lens of social movements at one point to describe her views on how social activism and social innovation might work better together. If you think about social movements, if you use a social movement lens, you can watch it happening right now in the States where the Women's March or now these young people in, in the march that they'll, they'll have around gun control increased gun control. Those are rabble-rousing social justice type strategies have an enormous impact in, in preparing the ecosystem for policy shift. Okay, let's do a bit of a language check here. I don't know about you, but for me, social justice activists, social movement leaders, system entrepreneurs, social entrepreneurs, policy advocates, all these kinds of change agents can and do play their own important roles in working for change. What I notice, though, is that even if the overall change goals are the same, these different approaches and kinds of leadership can become pitted against each other. And lately, I've been thinking that if social activists and system change leaders coordinated their efforts more often, maybe there's huge potential for more significant impact on big problems. But what would it look like right on the front lines of change work? Well, I got the chance to talk with someone who's living some real fire and water moments right now. Morenike Olau-Sebikan came to Canada from Nigeria 15 years ago to complete her studies. She's now a Canadian citizen, a pharmacist who owns and operates a pharmacy in Edmonton, Alberta. She is also the founder and president of the Ribbon Rouge Foundation. Her organization is committed to raising the voices of people affected by HIV, especially black immigrants living in Alberta. Morenike's work through Ribbon Rouge began as fiery energy, provocatively through art, storytelling, music, and community events, raising awareness and giving voice to the need for more justice within Alberta's health system. But now, for the first time, She's working with Alberta's health system, hoping to ensure more equitable services. She wants to see if the water approach can add to what FIRE has achieved so far. Hi, Marenike. Thanks so much for joining me today. 
Hey, it's a pleasure. So you've been collaborating with people within the health system lately, working with them to see if you can begin to spark some impact and to increase access to health services for the communities that you serve. To what extent has this been going the way you thought it would? <laughs> um, there, there's been some, some major wins. I think even the openness to collaborate with tiny organizations like mine has been quite um, a moment of progress. How it's been going according to what I thought would happen, not, not so much. Um, <laughs> uh, we, I've definitely had struggles. <laughs> it's not as fast as I would like it to go, and it's, it's definitely come with its challenges. Yeah, and you've mentioned those challenges to me before, that there was, um, for example, a listening campaign event in particular that, you know, really challenged your perspective on the value of the collaboration. So can you talk a little bit about what exactly happened with that? What did you experience when you kind of hit some real barriers there? What, I, what, was, what was happening from my point of view is we have these communities and community organizations and community leaders um, that we're trying to engage with from African, Caribbean, and Black communities. And we're trying to find a way to collaborate with these major institutions in academia and within our health systems like AHS and to see how we can um, include different levels of government in these listening sessions. And what was happening was I just felt that the value systems that were being prioritized in this listening campaign were values that are not in alignment with the communities we were speaking about. So there were attempts to be selective and exclusive in a situation where I didn't, these are not um, ideologies that, uh, or ideas that African people generally embrace. We're very radically inclusive. And so there's within the listening campaign, this uh, sort of uh, idea around mobilizing leaders who would form some form of advisory council for our health system. And within that, there was this attempt of wanting to cherry pick who those leaders would be. And for me, that was way too reminiscent of colonization and people who are not from our communities choosing who should be our leaders. And so these value systems really rubbed up against what I felt to be appropriate and what I know to be effective. And that, for me, caused a lot of attention and trying to bring that up in a way that would still be collaborative and will not put me in a situation where I felt like I was betraying these communities that I've come from and that, that I'm trying to ensure that there's a platform for their voice to be heard was very tricky, very uncomfortable, very annoying. <laughs> You know, you were your emotions were triggered when you really hit these barriers. You felt that kind of, you know, fierce, fiery energy of feeling angry and disappointed and frustrated. So, but how have you moved forward from that moment? What did you end up doing as next steps? I reached out to one of the uh, researchers that's on our team that I thought was the closest ally to me and the person who I thought would most understand where I was coming from because she's done decades of work, uh, over a decade of work with African communities in Alberta around HIV. 
And sadly, she hadn't been in a lot of meetings when things were going off the track. And so actually a lot of the things I shared with her was news to her and she was quite shocked that these things were happening. And so after that meeting, we then had a bigger debrief meeting with the team, including HS and the other researchers involved or the representative of HS, I should say. And so at that meeting, I basically just said everything I was thinking, said my mind on, just spoke my truth about everything that had happened and how I felt this was putting me in a position where I would have to betray people in my community, in the communities I'm representing and how that was not something I was going to be party to. And if it came to that, I would have to excuse myself from all of this and I would have to make sure everyone in my communities know that I have excused myself and why <laughs> I was choosing to move away. Um, and thankfully, uh, the researcher I had spoken to, who I said would understand where I was coming from, was really able to play knowledge translator. She was really able to listen to what I was saying and, and also buttress what I was saying to the group. And it was just a really good conversation where I could listen to the other um, participants in our in our team and then have them listen to where I was coming from with my concerns. So with the help of this woman that was kind of acting as your a bit of a liaison between these two um, different ways of seeing things, you were able to hear each other. And so where is the collaboration at now then? We really haven't had any conversations around what we're going to do going forward. Uh, if if we're going to have another listening session or what's going to happen next. But I am happy with um, how things are right now because I think it's actually really valuable that we all just pause and <laughs> reflect on how things went and what lessons there are to learn from that. I think we will still be working together in the future. It's just, I think we're going to be a lot more upfront about how we're engaging. And I also find people are way more responsive now <laughs> to, to my emails or my questions. I don't know if that's a good or bad thing because I'm not trying to scare anyone into <laughs> working with me. But there's also, um, I, was, I was also going to say that, yeah, I love the analogy of fire and water. The, an analogy that has really stuck with me this past few weeks since reading Adam Kihane's book is Power and Love. Mm, such a great quote. Uh, Martin Luther King, and he said, Power without love is reckless and abusive, and love without power is sentimental and anemic. So many powerful ideas just in those few words. What about that has been most useful to you, Marinike? Um, there's this way he puts it in the book around breathing. Like you need breathe, you need to breathe air to survive. And at the same time, you can't just inhale all the time or exhale all the time. That there, you have to inhale and exhale. And that's sort of how this tension between power and love works. That there's a point where power needs to be wielded. And then there's points where love needs to be embraced. And so I think those tensions also were sort of what I was experiencing and trying to learn how much of what to use when and in which situations with whom. 
I love the way you're relating fire and water to not only activism and, you know, more strategic system change, but also to these ideas of power in the broadest sense and love in the broadest sense. You are, in your own way, an activist that challenges power and raises awareness about injustices. And then you also are now this this system entrepreneur, this social innovator trying to work with that power and influence them and make it more possible for them to move in new directions. So I'm just wondering, what do you see the relationship between the two as? There's this tension in me that because of the way I grew up and the people I revere as activists, there's something in me that tends to feel as though the moment you start negotiating or talking to the enemy in quotation mark, or like you start liaising with them, it's almost like you're beginning to sell out on yeah. something. Yeah. There's that, there's that, there's that vein just a little bit in there, I think, that I always have to sort of keep at bay. And so it's just always there beneath the surface. So if anything comes anywhere close to proving that, I feel like the reaction people might get from me <laughs> might be a bit more than what they're expecting. And so there's that feeling I have to negotiate around it. And at the same time, I think there is a need for it. Um, and I tend to see social innovation as this place of ideas and processes and looking at things on different skills and trying to build something, trying to create something, trying to transform what is. And I think it's like yin and yang. It, both things are, are necessary. There's the need to um, really point out the injustices and really like attempt to tear down what is wrong in this world and to stand against things. And then there is this need to also embrace and stand for something and be creative. And I think the two things just play off each other if they're allowed to. What would allow them to? What do you think is the trick or the strategy that they could actually play off one another and work together more? What has to happen? I think we live in a world that tends to just think that things have to be black and white. And what needs to happen is there needs to be more people that don't see the world as black and white. There needs to be more people that see the world as both things at the same time. That we need to have more people that don't just have polar opposite ideologies and philosophies and then just stay there. and not attempt to actually problematize things or see the world as complex because the world is complex and there's no these this desire to have righteous and unrighteous good versus bad you know is not the way the world really exists and i think more people just need to come to that point and i think activists and social innovators both need to embrace what is good in each other. Morenike reminds us that the most urgent problems of our world are very complex. And that means that our work for change needs to match that complexity. We can learn a lot more about how to align different energies for social innovation. One thing that seems to be clear is that there's an important role for bridging between these various approaches because we need the temperature, the character, and the impacts of both fire and water, 
over the course of a journey towards change. Marenike Olau-Sebika is the founder and president of the Ribbon Rouge Foundation. Thank you, Marenike, for sharing insights from your work. Thanks also to Francis Wesley and Marilyn Struthers for taking some time to talk with me. Both are former chairs in social innovation, Francis at the University of Waterloo and Marilyn at Ryerson University. Francis Wesley is also currently the director of the Getting to Maybe program. My gratitude to my colleague Julian Norris for introducing me to that quote about fire and water. Molly Siegel is my podcast coach and co-producer. The BAMP Center practicum Esther Gad provided post-production support. The Getting to Maybe Social Innovation Residency at the BAM Center and all the people who've been a part of it are the inspiration for this podcast series. Morena Kay is a past participant. I want to acknowledge that Banff is located on Treaty 7 territory, the traditional lands of the Blackfoot, Stony Nakoda, and Sutina Nations. I hope you'll be able to join me next time for another story about the complexities of working for social innovation, another story about getting closer to maybe.